Chapter 7 of Walpole. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Walpole by John Morley. Chapter 7 The Cabinet. Part 1. The great constitutional question of the eighteenth century, as every reader knows, was whether the government of the realm should be parliamentary or monarchical. Was it to be an absolute rule of the king, or, as Cromwell sought, a parliament making laws and voting money coordinate with the authority of the chief person, and not meddling with the executive, or a parliament containing, nominating, guiding, and controlling its own executive? Walpole found it easiest, safest, and most natural to work steadily toward the last of these three systems. A secondary but hardly less important question turned on the mechanism by which the system could best be made to work. Walpole's vehement and effectual resistance to the peerage bill proved the strength of his conviction that a close aristocracy was not the system, nor the House of Lords the instrument for smoothly and successfully conducting the national affairs. The lower house besides its decisive prerogative of taxation, had the merit, in spite of venal pot-wallopers and territorial nominees, of containing a considerable representation of the new classes and new interests that were slowly asserting their importance. The large towns like Bristol and Newcastle and the freeholders of counties contributed a strong independent element, even the immense number of nominees of the great families were probably not out of proportion to their natural weight and influence. In dealing with the House of Commons, a minister was dealing with the living and social forces of the country in all their variety. The first question was how to organize them for practical purposes, and Walpole answered it by the principle of party. He founded his government directly on the support of a Whig majority in the House of Commons, though that majority was in great part due to the assent of powerful members of the House of Lords. The second question was how to keep administration in gear with the party majority, and Walpole's solution was a party cabinet. The cabinet system was the key to parliamentary monarchy. The Act of Settlement did much more than regulate the succession. The Tories consoled themselves by inserting two restrictive constitutional provisions of very remarkable scope. One was an attempt to revive the authority of the Privy Council by ordaining that all such matters and things pertaining to the government of the realm as are by law and custom properly cognizable in the Privy Council should be transacted there, and that all resolutions taken there should be signed by such Privy Councillors as should advise and consent to the same. This clause was leveled at the practice which had grown up under Charles II and his brother of governing through a select cabinet of the king's servants to the detriment, as was supposed, both of the privy council as a whole and of the lawful power and authority of parliament. Another provision of the Act of Settlement shows in a still stronger light how little shaped were the constitutional ideas of the day, and has special bearings on Walpole's share in our constitutional development. It enacted that no holder of office under the king 
should be capable of serving as a member of the house of commons a section of only a couple of lines was thus enough by excluding ministers from the representative house to divorce the executive from the legislative branch of government this was by no means in the mind or intention of the framers of the bill what they desired was to put a stop to the corruption of members of parliament by places and pensions from the crown the section would have been a remedy for the evil at which it was aimed but it would have fundamentally transformed the constitution of this country as we understand it and at the same time all those numerous constitutions which are derived or imitated from our own both clauses were repealed in the early part of the reign of anne they never therefore came into operation but they have an interest of their own in this place walpole's work in shaping the constitution may be described as fixing it on the very foundations which the fourth and sixth sections of the act of settlement would have made impossible in other words the effect of his policy when it was finally carried through was to establish the cabinet on a definite footing as the seat and centre of the executive government to maintain the executive in the closest relation with the legislature to govern through the legislature and to transfer the power and authority of the crown to the house of commons some writers have held that the first ministry in the modern sense was that combination of whigs whom william called to aid him in government in sixteen ninety five others contend that the second administration of lord rockingham which came into power in seventeen eighty two after the triumph of the american colonists the fall of lord north and the defeat of george the third was the earliest ministry of the type of to-day at whatever date we choose first to see all the decisive marks of that remarkable system which combines unity steadfastness and initiative in the executive with the possession of supreme authority alike over men and measures by the house of commons it is certain that it was under walpole that its ruling principles were first fixed in parliamentary government and the cabinet system received the impression that it bears in our own time this is not the place for any inquiry into the black-letter learning relating to the various royal or national councils the name of cabinet council according to the books first occurs casually in bacon's essays sir walter raleigh gave the name of cabinet council to his curious collection of political and polemical aphorisms as a piece of mechanism a cabinet is first heard of in the reign of charles i and is mentioned both by clarendon and pepys charles the second made certain well-known experiments in the same direction but no monarch with charles's absolutist leanings could desire to set up any body of private advisers in an established position within either the letter of the law or the spirit of the constitution the growth of the cabinet system has been as gradual and as apparently fortuitous as most other articles of our constitutional development neither the theory nor the actual rules and marks of this peculiar institution have been put into shape even by this time 
much less was any theory of it present to the minds of statesmen in the eighteenth century the practice was not uniform and depended on the cohesion of parties on the exigencies of the moment and on the temper or the position of the sovereign and of the minister it is really in the reign of queen anne that the system comes into pretty clear outline godolphin forced sunderland upon the queen in seventeen o six and he compelled her to remove harley afterwards each of these steps was prompted by the victory of the whigs in the elections of seventeen o five so far as it went this was a recognition of two main principles of the modern system first that the chief adviser of the crown chooses his colleagues and next that a cabinet depends upon a majority in the house of commons but neither principle made very rapid way how unsettled were the notions attached to the term of cabinet is curiously illustrated in a parliamentary incident of seventeen eleven a motion had been put down of censure on the cabinet council for causing misfortunes in spain when the motion came on the wording was found to have been altered so as to direct it not against the cabinet but against ministers the alteration gave rise to a singular discussion the mover justified it on the ground that the word ministers was better known than the words cabinet council lord cowper thought one term just as objectionable as the other cabinet was unknown in our law both were vague the house ought to know what minister was aimed at and whether more than one was intended a third speaker held that there was no distinction between minister and cabinet a fourth replied truly enough from the modern point of view that ministry is more extensive than cabinet peterborough interposed with a witty remark that the privy council were such as were thought to know everything and knew nothing while the cabinet council were those who thought that nobody knew anything but themselves footnote parliamentary history volume six page nine seventy one end footnote no fewer than three distinct bodies are to be recognized during the reign of anne as taking part in the transaction of public business apart from the deliberations of parliament on the one hand and the executive orders of the secretary of state on the other first the treaties of peace and commerce in seventeen thirteen are described as having been read in the great council and there ordered to be ratified footnote bolingbroke's letters twenty ninth september seventeen thirteen footnote this was evidently little more than a merely formal proceeding without debate like those of the privy council in modern days it seems that some criticism was offered but it was resented by bolingbroke as unusual and meaningless after the suspicion that had prompted the clause in the act of settlement ministers would hardly have felt themselves safe in ratifying so momentous a set of instruments as the treaties of utrecht without this solemnity a writer of the time for instance quoted by hallam lays it down that the chancellor could only make himself safe in setting the great seal to foreign alliances on condition that a matter of that consequence had been first debated and resolved in council footnote see 
in lord campbell's life of lord king lives of chancellors chapter one hundred and twenty five and footnote the whole circumstances of the peace of utrecht were so full of peril to the ministers concerned as later events showed that the desire to make himself as safe as he could was something very different from the scruple of a constitutional pedant and simply sprang from natural anxiety to keep his head on his shoulders there is no reason to suppose that walpole and the marlborough whigs were invited to the great council on this occasion any more than the opposition is invited on similar occasions now second mention is frequently made of a body of which all traces have now disappeared it is called sometimes committee of council and sometimes lords of the council and it met usually at the cockpit in whitehall this body was evidently more restricted than the privy council it was less restricted than the cabinet council and it was different from the cabinet in composition footnote in a letter of bolingbroke's fifteenth december seventeen eleven he talks of quote, the committee of council not sitting till tomorrow night nor the cabinet till monday end quote. they were evidently therefore two distinct bodies other passages in bolingbroke's letters referring to this committee of council are as follows second october and twenty sixth october seventeen eleven fourth september thirteenth september twelfth november seventeen thirteen eleventh february seventeen thirteen to fourteen end footnote it was perhaps composed with a particular view to collecting the opinion of specialists its proceedings were not purely formal it really discussed and transacted business just as the cabinet discusses and transacts it now and as no other executive body does now excepting the cabinet the preliminary negotiations of the treaty of utrecht were first disclosed to the lords at the cockpit and repeatedly debated and authorized by them foreign envoys argued their case before them they authorized the instructions to lord strafford on his important mission to the hague in seventeen eleven they were brought into action in settling the instructions to mr harley when he was dispatched to hanover two years later we can only conjecture that the lords of the committee of council were selected by the secretary of state with the express approval possibly even on the personal initiative of the queen and were brought together upon occasions of moment when it was desired to clothe great executive acts with peculiar authority and solemnity the privy council always worked through committees the lords at the cockpit were probably a committee especially formed for foreign affairs just as the committee where harley was stabbed by giscard was a judicial committee taking cognizance of a charge of high treason walpole appointed a committee of the privy council to report to parliament on the charges of corruption against lord macclesfield against this view however that the lords at whitehall were a committee on foreign affairs analogous to the later committee for trade and plantations we have to set the circumstance that it was at a meeting of this committee of council assembled first at the cockpit and thence suddenly called to kensington by the alarming condition of the queen that the famous scene took place which i have already described on page thirty eight footnote 
the failure to distinguish this body from the council at large explains the obscurity and confusion of ordinary accounts of what happened on that memorable day and footnote so far as i know there is no later reference to it whatever may have been the functions of this committee it was evidently a ministerial council and the intrusion of the opposition lords was an irregularity the committee may be regarded as a compromise between the old and venerated institution of the privy council and the new the immature and the jealously suspected institution of the cabinet it is not improbable that privy councillors who were not in office sometimes attended this intermediate committee if so it was a sort of example for those conferences which took place in the parliament of eighteen sixty eight between the prime minister and lord cairns in reference to the details of the two great irish measures of the government and again in eighteen eighty four between the prime minister of the day and the leader of the opposition to settle the redistribution of parliamentary seats there are those who believe circumstances to be without difficulty conceivable under which a select body of eminent privy councillors might come together to take part in deliberation and thus might make the chief men of both parties jointly responsible for some great act of state speculations of this kind however must be viewed with lively suspicion by everybody who believes that party is an essential element in the wholesome working of parliamentary government such joint responsibility would destroy party and its growth in practice might easily be used both to revive the decaying power of the house of lords and even to restore disused authority to any sovereign who might try to press every question in which he happened to feel an interest toward this method of joint solution the third group of advisers was the cabinet down to the end of walpole's time they were referred to as lords of the cabinet or lords of the cabinet council the cabinet is now an informal committee of the privy council which in time superseded in effect all other groups formed within that body and became as everybody knows clothed with attributes of its own of the highest novelty and importance certain offices such as that of first commissioner of the admiralty footnote bolingbroke to strafford twelfth of august seventeen twelve and footnote always brought their holder into cabinet so did the lord lieutenancy of ireland footnote stanhope to walpole sixteenth january seventeen seventeen and footnote some great personages always sat in the cabinet during the first half of the eighteenth century who sit there no longer lord chancellor hardwick describes a cabinet council in seventeen thirty seven at which the archbishop of canterbury was present as well as the lord chamberlain the master of the horse and the groom of the stole what is still more curious bolingbroke writing to tell the bishop of bristol then lord privy seal and a plenipotentiary at utrecht that the queen desires to make him bishop of london consoles him for the change by the assurance that as the head of the diocese of london he will keep his seat in the cabinet footnote second september seventeen sixty three and footnote 
we are no more likely again to see a prelate of the church in the cabinet than we are again to see one made lord keeper when the inclusion of the primate and the four great officers of the royal household ceased it is not easy to tell in the first rockingham administration of seventeen sixty five the cabinet contained the duke of portland as lord chamberlain and the duke of rutland as master of the horse in pitt's administration which succeeded the household officers do not appear as of cabinet rank and it may be that the great commoner abolished that arrangement it certainly lasted down to the fall of walpole footnote see harvey's memoirs volume three page three fifty eight and harris's life of hardwick volume one pages three sixty five four o four and etc and footnote some curious expressions linger very late for instance after the pelhams had routed granville and lord bath in seventeen forty six and when the latter held no office they made it one of their conditions with the king that bath quote, might be out of the cabinet council end quote, footnote cox's pelham volume one page two ninety five end footnote there could be no question now of the victors in a contest for power bargaining that their defeated rivals should be excluded from attendance at cabinets as well as from office again it has often been remarked that in the younger pitt's first cabinet he was the only commoner but throughout the eighteenth century cabinets were mainly composed of peers it was remarked as an extraordinary proof of walpole's power that in seventeen thirty three he insisted on giving the post of first lord of the admiralty to sir charles wager though no commoner had been thought worthy of that office since the accession of the house of brunswick the king made wagers want of family distinction and express ground of objection and what is more curious the veteran himself thought a purely imaginary genealogy a better recommendation than his real services in harvey's list of the cabinet at the close of walpole's government wager and sir robert are the only two commoners in the pelham government which after a very short interval succeeded walpole henry pelham was the only commoner in the cabinet and pelham like the younger pitt was himself the son and the brother of a peer footnote of this cabinet we have that rare record an account of a division with a list of those who voted ay and no respectively see the introduction to mr york's parliamentary journal End footnote. a very remarkable incident occurred a few years after walpole's death a certain person asserted that he had heard a bishop the solicitor-general and another drink at table to the health of the pretender he was summoned before the cabinet council put on his oath and interrogated and after hearing the other side the cabinet reported to the king on this proceeding a debate was raised in the house of lords in which strong language was used against what had been done as a revival of the star chamber the holy inquisition and so forth it was no committee of council it had no more legal authority than any private meeting of lords it was an attempt to erect a new jurisdiction the lord chancellor cited an earlier instance of this very extraordinary proceeding but there seems to be no later footnote for a full account see cox's pelham's administration chapter thirty section two two fifty four to two sixty three 
End footnote. The same reluctance existed in the first forty years of the century that has been so constantly felt by wise ministers since to make precedents for enlarging the cabinet. The Queen had much rather confined than extend it, says Bolingbroke. Unfortunately, circumstances have set so strongly in the contrary direction during recent years, and the number of ministers almost necessarily included in a cabinet has grown so large, that it seems as if the result must inevitably be the formation of an interior junto, small enough to allow of deliberation and decision at close quarters. This will be no more than a return to the system of Walpole's time, a large cabinet, but the effective body composed of himself, the Chancellor, and the two Secretaries of State. Walpole, as we might have expected from his character, called meetings of the cabinet as seldom as possible. His habit was to invite two or three of his colleagues, specially acquainted with the business in hand, to dine with him, and then he settled it. The regular cabinet dinner was an informal device of a later age, marked by the peculiarity and possible convenience that no minute of the topics of discussion was necessarily sent to the sovereign, as in the case of formal meetings of the cabinet. Cabinet dinner seems to have been dropped as a practice for the last thirty years. It was in full vogue during the Aberdeen government, but fell into abeyance under Lord Palmerston, who always cared mainly for national defense and foreign relations, and did not choose to sacrifice a social evening to talk about miscellaneous business. Perhaps the most important of all the distinctions between the cabinet in its rudimentary stage at the beginning of the century and its later practice remains to be noticed. Queen Anne held a cabinet every Sunday at which she was herself present, just as we have seen that she was present at debates in the House of Lords. With a doubtful exception in the time of George III, no sovereign has been present at a meeting of the cabinet since Anne, though George II presided on one memorable occasion at a meeting of the Privy Council, which is not easily to be distinguished from a cabinet. Footnote. Lord Waldegrave, in his memoirs, mentions a meeting of, quote, the king's principal servants, end quote, to consider the Prince of Wales's establishment in 1756. Some of the books take his language to mean that the king was present, but the implication is clearly the other way. End footnote. This vital change was probably due to the accident, that Anne's successor did not understand the language in which its deliberations were carried on. The withdrawal of the sovereign from cabinet councils was essential to the momentous change which has transferred the whole substance of authority and power from the crown to a committee chosen by one member of the two houses of parliament from among other members. End of chapter 7 the Cabinet, Part 1. Recording by Pamela Nagami.